We know that when we say, I do, that the way may be rough. But richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, we choose to walk together. It's not a coincidence that the Bible writers from Solomon to Paul compare what it means to be the community of God to what it's like to be in a healthy marriage. And that's why the early Christians so in love with Christ, the husband, the church, the bride, fresh from the wedding, can't help but get together, to look in each other's eyes, to serve together, to be devoted together, to give whatever is needed with glad and generous hearts. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. You know, any married couple can tell you, and this is a lesson often learned uh, the hard way, There is no substitute for quality time. And while quantity is not a substitute for quality, increasing the quantity provides more opportunity for the quality. The early church met together, loved together, fellowshiped together, served together. And it was the togetherness that created a bond that couldn't be broken. And they weren't just doing this because they thought it was a good idea or because they read it in a relationship book. They were doing it because they were following their master. And Luke takes special notice of this. In his gospel account, Jesus, according to Luke, taught daily in the temple. He taught us to pray for our daily bread. He said that whenever you think about taking up your cross, you know, the other gospels, he just says, take up your cross and follow me. But Luke adds in a word to do it daily. And that's no wonder that the early church, when you get to the book of Acts, Luke's second volume, is involved in daily life, serving the master. In Acts 6 and verse 1, they're They're feeding the poor on a daily basis. And the church is growing every single day. And I think the reason why we see this language so clearly in the book of Acts is because this seems to be an early pattern, if you will, of the early church. For example, if you're trying to figure out how often the early church get together, you'll find the language in Hebrews 10. Don't, Don't forsake getting together like, the manner of some is, but do it. And listen to this interesting line. All the more as you see that great day approaching. All the more sounds like more than just stick to the schedule. And maybe that's why earlier in Hebrews 3 and verse 13, the Hebrew writer says, exhort one another every day while it's called a day. It's no wonder in Acts 2. They're day by day in the temple courts, day by day in each other's homes, day by day breaking bread with one another. This is what quality time looks like when quantity is an outgrowth of our desire for quality. In Acts 2, this community 
walks together arm in arm towards what the early Christians called themselves. They called it the way. Can you see them walking on the way? And when asked, why do you act this way? They say, because this is the way. The way to love. The way to serve. The way to be different than the world. The way to offer a counter-narrative and a counter-culture. This is the way of peace and joy and love. And this is the way of the master. You ever notice? It's very hard to hate somebody who's praying with you or praying for you. I I think this is a really interesting exercise to try. The next time you are in a bitter dispute, I mean, you cannot understand why they can't see the truth. It's just so obvious I'm right. And they're not getting it through their thick head. The next time you find yourself in that situation, doubling down on why you're right, you know isn't going to work. And trying to point out more ways in which they're wrong will not lead to anything wholesome. Try this. Pause and say, you know what? I really want to make sure my heart is in the right place. Would you pray for me? And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, that's a good trick. You see, if I do that, then they'll realize that really they're in the wrong and they'll feel guilty by my great humility. And I suggest that's not the point. In that prayer, when you realize that there is a God in heaven who is greater than us all, it makes this issue we're fighting about seem so small. And it allows somebody else to act as priest and intercessor for you. Praying together breaks down walls. It breaks down barriers and it forms bonds. And it's not a coincidence that the early church decided that they would pray together. They would devote themselves to prayer and they would do it every day. How often should we gather and pray? I'd say as often as you want walls to be broken, bonds to be formed, and Christ to be magnified in our lives. So it should come as no surprise that the next thing they do is they give to one another spontaneously, freely. It just flows out of who they are, following the example of their Lord, the one who gave all, the one who renounced any ownership, the one who says all we have is stewardship, They laid down all their stuff, all their things on the ground. And then they agreed together on how best to hand it out to help those who are hurting far more than they are. I've had days in my life, fewer than they should be, when I gave something that hurt. I bet you have too. Those moments when you empty your hands sometimes in great amounts. Maybe a child of yours is in dire straits. Maybe a a Kiwanis Club meeting that you've been going to all your life is just shy of their goal. And every eye turns and looks at you. Because of your status in the community, 
And out of a sense of obligation, you help them get over the hump. Giving's good. Giving's valuable. It's helpful. But it's not always easy or fun. But this group, this band of lovers, they lay everything they have down on the ground, and then they choose to give it all away. And they did all of this, note this line, with glad and generous hearts. Does your Bible say that too? Glad and generous hearts. I think the reason why they were able to do this is because they were on their honeymoon. Do you remember your honeymoon? Starry-eyed, you can see no wrong. You can do no wrong. You're always on. You're always the best version of yourself. I mean, we don't, we don't need to take care of things once we're asked. We take care of it before we're asked. And if they do something that can be interpreted well or badly, we hear it only in the best possible light. And if one messes up, the other is so quick, so quick to forgive. If one means well, but missteps, the other one sees nothing but good intention, nothing more and nothing less. What do you think causes this total transformation? What fuels this level of self-surrender? It's called love a passion deeper than what we think or what we want. This love is all-consuming, and it changes us from the inside out. Because I'm not just me, and you're not just you. Now together we form this brand new thing called us. And the whole world is born anew. We know that when we say, I do, that the way may be rough, but richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, we choose to walk together. And all the things that are understood around the world as essential ingredients in any success story, wealth, fame, power, they don't hold a candle to love. And even though we ain't got money, we're so in love with each other. You can say it, honey. And our being together changes both of us. And maybe you've, you've heard it said that there's no greater influence in your life, no determining factor of who you're going to be or what you'll become than the five closest relationships in your life. It's true. Attitudes are contagious. It's why we choose our friends carefully. We choose our spouse wisely. And how often have we discovered that for good or ill, our desire to love or our empowerment to hate is fueled by who we keep company with. It's not a coincidence that the Bible writers from Solomon to Paul compare what it means to be the community of God to what it's like to be in a healthy marriage. And that's why 
the early Christians so in love with Christ, the husband, the church, the bride, fresh from the wedding, can't help but get together, to look in each other's eyes, to serve together, to be devoted together, to give whatever is needed with glad and generous hearts. You know, the word glad in my Bible can be rendered lots of things. For example, in several versions, the word glad comes out as joyful. Some versions try to bring out the sense of of how it makes us feel (coughs) by translating the word as happy or even exuberant. Oh, their hearts were happy. But the word glad is even deeper than that. It's the word used in the Psalms to describe what it's like when you enter into the presence of the Lord. We sang the song just before the lesson. We'll enter his gates with thanksgiving in our heart because he has made me glad. When you realize that God, the God of heaven and earth, has chosen you to be his child, or another analogy, he's chosen you to be the bride of Christ. Has thrown a marriage supper for the Lamb and has invited you. What word comes to mind? What's the word for when the glory was so strong that it was shining off the face of Moses as a reflection, so bright that he had to wear a veil over his face? What's the word for that? When they headed up to the temple, they'd speak of the joy of the Lord that is their strength. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. It's an overwhelming feeling of security and thankfulness. The smile from ear to ear, like you had a, like you slept with a coat hanger in your mouth all night. And here in Acts 2, Peter in Pentecost uses that language, even before we get to the passage we're reading. Back in Acts 2, verses 25 to 28, he's talking about the promise of new life. Listen as Peter preaches this sermon. For David says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced, for my flesh will dwell in hope. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Glad hearts set on fire by the promise of new life by a covenant-keeping king who makes us his children, glad hearts. And then we come to this other word. The ESV says generous hearts. And that's a good guess. You see, this word only appears one time in the entire Bible. So trying to figure out what this word means, you usually want to compare it with how it's used somewhere else. It isn't used anywhere else. And so the best I was able to find is that this word is related to the Other words in the New Testament like simplicity or single-mindedness. You know, remember those passages where the Bible says, don't be double-minded? The problem with being double-minded is that now you've got two loyalties, which divides your heart, it divides your mind, it also divides your stuff. Jesus one time said, you can't have two masters. Because you'll hate one and you'll love the other. You can't have two gods that you're completely devoted to. 
And the same way in a marriage, we're called to realize you aren't called to have two lovers beside yourself. You're called to be solely devoted and focused to one. And that singularity, that single-mindedness, don't you think it produces generosity? I mean, listen to the language. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 2, Paul says, when you were in a severe test of affliction, your abundance of joy mixed with your extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on your part. When you realize you had nothing and yet you had everything because of the one that your soul loves, you couldn't help but give. James 1 and verse 5, if anyone needs wisdom, you should ask God whose very nature is to give to everyone without a second thought, without keeping score. And when you put these words together, glad and simple, joyful and generous, you get an idea spoken throughout the New Testament of people who happily and freely do everything with each other and for each other with simple joy. Because they're one. Listen to Luke as he describes the early church. Here's Acts 1 verse 14. All devoted themselves single-mindedly to prayer. Or Acts 4.24. They raised their voices to God with singleness of heart. Acts 5.12. The believers were united in mind and purpose. When Paul's in prison, He writes to the Philippians and he says, I wish to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, like a newlywed couple. It means to have one mind, one heart, the heart of Jesus Christ. The ancient Romans, the orators who spoke in Rome said true friendship and ideal families And even well-run cities have one thing in common. You're moved to unite to peace. You decide to reconcile. You have one mind, one heart, one purpose, and every side joins together to share in the prosperity of the other. Do you see how singular focus leads to generosity? Here's how Paul put it. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And I can't help but notice the result. With glad and generous hearts, they give and serve and love. And the text says, everybody loved them. And the church grew every day. What in the world is so attractive about this kind of life? Many of you know that one of my favorite preachers, a once in a generation talent, was Tim Keller. He planted a church right in the heart of Wall Street, right in the near Times Square. 
And beginning with a group that could sit comfortably in his living room, the church grew to welcome over 5,000 people every Sunday. His books were bestsellers. This firm believer in the truth of the Bible and the life-giving power of the Spirit, he was invited to speak at TED Talks, and Google invited him to speak to all those, you know, secular technology gurus and Wall Street billionaires. They told them reasons to believe in God and commit to Jesus Christ. And because of pancreatic cancer, Tim died just one month ago. And letters of praise are still pouring in. And you can read them from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to personal blogs by 20-somethings who you've never heard of, who decided Christ is who they want to serve because of something they read him say. And in this month's edition of Christianity Today, the editor-in-chief writes a tribute about him. And I was struck by this paragraph. Would you listen to this? Planning a growing influential church in New York City, Tim never saw New York as a kind of irredeemable Sodom and Gomorrah against which to rail. He could have done that easily. If not in New York itself, then certainly to raise money and to get attention across the country. He could have pictured himself as a besieged evangelical Christian with lurid stories about how the decadent culture of New York was coming eventually to your house if you didn't support his effort to fight it. But he never did that. Not even in private conversations. It wasn't just that Tim loved New York. It's also that he never saw his fellow New Yorkers, including those most hostile to the Christian gospel, as if they were irredeemable. He remembered what it was like to be an unbeliever pursued by a loving God. What makes thousands of people in the heart of New York City cry out every week for Jesus? And what could cause people surrounded by everything the world has to offer to look for a different way and to think that they could find it in church? Our text says that many Many people heard and saw what the early church was doing. And they heard the message. If you join us, we're going to ask you to give everything you have away, to give up reputation, to give up all your ambition for self-achievement. We're going to ask you to become nothing so that everyone around you can become everything. And what makes daily many, many people say, that's what I'm looking for. I've got to think that their love for each other, like the newlyweds you see right after the kiss, right after the I do, was infectious. It was contagious. There was something about this little band that offered something you can't find anywhere else. A joy that passes, surpasses having in your hands, a peace that surpasses all understanding. A hope that isn't tied to anything in this world, but rather is completely and solely dedicated to the single-minded focus of the one they love. May we, God's church, with one heart, worship and praise God our Father by welcoming each other and with single-mindedness and total focus, 
praise God and serve one another with glad and generous hearts. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.